Good morning, everyone. Junior church, four years old through fourth grade, you are dismissed to walk. Um, we have a lot of talented people who are doing communion meditations and everything, but I got to say that last guy, he was really good, I thought. Um, <laughs> I could really practice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, okay, yeah. There are several ideas about what God's are like. People all over the world have these different views, names, and attributes they give to various gods that they worship. The ancient Mayan um, Indians in Tolomex, Mexico had no Bibles. They knew nothing of the creation story. You can see where the little red dot is, just so you can see that's where this, these people were. They knew nothing of the creation story. They knew nothing about Israel or God's plan to save his people from sins. They, they only had this vaguest idea of what sin was. And it regulated not only the um, native sense of right and wrong, but how they would govern everything. But they believed in the existence of multiple gods. But through all that, they had what they called an upper god. They called him Itzmama. Itzamna. Let me say that right. Itzamna. They believed him to be the creator of the universe, and within it, that meant human beings, so Itzamna, created all things. He was believed to reside in the sky and uphold all the corners of the world. They believed that when times were bad, Itzamna was very displeased. At times, to kind of appease him, the Mayans decided to resort to human sacrifices to please Itzamna. Despite the harshness of Itzamna, he is depicted as the apex of all their different gods and at the top of their temples. And, and here's a picture of him. He is also called the upside-down god or the descending god because he elevates everything up. So he upholds it. Now, the Mayans were considered to be very intelligent, and yet from the late 8th uh, through the end of the ninth century, something happened that we don't fully understand to shake the Mayan civilization to its foundations. And one by one, their cities in the southern lowlands were abandoned, and by A.D. 900, their society collapsed. Even the big upper god, Itzman, Itzamna, could not uphold their civilization. The, uh, the reason for this mysterious decline, as I said, is unknown. Those scholars have developed various um, comp um, competing theories. But the Mayans believed that their God, who was little understood, that they couldn't get to know him, reached down to people with loving care when he was happy. Um, though they thought this, they didn't know the truth. They didn't have Psalm 19. We're in a series of going through the book of Psalms, and we are blessed to have Psalm 19 as well as the rest of Scripture. Unlike Itzamna and other false gods who are made of stone, metal, wood, the true God, our God, speaks to mankind in various ways. And today, as we continue this sermon series, we come to Psalm 19, and this one is written by David. It is a song that he really intended to be part of a worship service. 
And so really, I want us, as we look at this, as we read this Scripture, as we hear the truth of this Scripture, don't think of it as words, but think of it as a continuation of that worship we just partook of. The worship in the songs, the worship in the communion, and now we're going to worship even deeper into what God's truth says in this chapter. It was intended to be part of that worship in the temple, so listen to it. In Psalm 19, verse 1, David sings this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now, notice the first or the second word there, the heavens. That's in plural form. Well, I only know of one heaven, but David here is talking about plurality of heavens, so that got me on a word search, and I started looking into this, figuring it out. The word heaven has multiple meanings, just like it does to us today. Words have different meanings. We know this. If I say I love my wife, and then I say I love mac and cheese, that doesn't mean the same thing. I use the same word, different meaning. Okay? And so the same thing here. What is it? In ancient times, this is what I found out, they believed in three heavens. Three heavens. Heaven one consists of the Earth's atmosphere, the sky. It extends about 20 miles above the Earth, getting thinner and colder as it goes towards its outer limits. There are multiple layers within the atmosphere, each with characteristics, but for our purposes, we're, we're just going to notice and look at the troposphere and the stratosphere. The stratosphere, still within the atmosphere, is the outermost part of the Earth's atmosphere. The troposphere is where we breathe air, and where you, uh, the birds and the planes all fly, where you see all the clouds. The word for air is Uranus, which is also translated heaven. So in the heaven, that's one heaven. Um, the beauty we see in daytime sky resides in the atmosphere, the heaven here. We cannot see be it beyond it when the sun is out, so we can only see a blue heaven that time. That's the first heaven. The second heaven that the ancients believed in was the celestial realm, beyond the Earth's atmosphere, or what I grew up calling outer space. The space where the moon, planets, our sun, and all the stars. I, I remember going out when we lived in Wyoming at, in a very clear night, the moon wasn't out, you could see the Milky Way. You could see that band of stars across the sky with a, where it was just a little more bright because of all the stars there. The solar system, you could see it. That is heaven too. And when, when they talk about it in Scripture, they call that the heaven. It's up there. Charlotte um, Bronte author of the classic Jane Eyre, made this observation about the second heaven that we see at nighttime. She said, we know that God is everywhere, but certainly we feel his presence most when his works are on the grandest scale spread before us, and it's in the unclouded night sky where his worlds wheel their silent course, and we read clearest his infinitude, his omnipotence, and his omnipresence. So grand is the appearance of the sky that God knew man would take notice of it and, and feel inclined to actually worship it and give deity status to the sky. We know this because look what God says in Deuteronomy 4.19, and be careful not to raise your eyes to heaven, heaven again, and it means this second heaven, 
and look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the heavenly lights. That's how we know he's talking about the seventh, the second heaven. And allow yourself to be drawn away and worship them and serve them, things which the Lord your God has allotted to all the people under the whole earth. You can look at the glory and the splendors of the second heaven, but don't worship it. I made it. It's creation. So we have sky, we have space. The third heaven is the dwelling place of God, his throne room. In location, in reference to the earth, it's, it's beyond the atmosphere, it's beyond outer space. We're not even given its real um, location, suggesting maybe it's a different dimension, maybe it's, it's something, alter, um, something we can't comprehend. It's described in Revelation as what likely figurative language. When Paul said that he was called up, in the, not in the body, but in the soul, and he got to see it, but he wasn't allowed to tell anybody what he saw. Unlike Paul, though, John was taken up to heaven 3 in Revelation 1-9, and we have the benefit of reading what John saw in Revelation 4. He was caught up into the, the heaven, heaven 3. And the reason why I want to say this this is all through Scripture. As I was looking at this, you can start seeing heavens all through the Bible. And that doesn't mean different levels of God's heaven, of paradise. King David's son, Solomon, recognized multiple heavens in his prayer dedication to the temple. 1 Kings 8.27, but, but will God indeed dwell on earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. Heaven, sky, highest heaven, which is the dwelling place of God, those can't just contain you. Even Jesus passed through the heavens, Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. I want to make sure we understand, because this is where we get weird ideas of different levels of heaven. You know, there's seventh heaven which was a cute TV show that was really titled After Bad Theology. I've talked to other religions where they got these different roles and realms within heaven, and, and I hope I can make it to this realm, but only the elite can go to this realm, and that's not what it is. Everywhere you look in Scripture, it explains it. There's sky, there's space, and then there's God's dwelling place, and they all use the same word, heaven. So don't get confused by it. That heaven can mean one of those three or all of those three. So now we know what heavens are in a biblical expression. Look back again at Psalm 19. The heavens, what do they do? All three of those heavens, they declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. The, the following verses say that heavens pour out. They speak about the glories of God. That day to day, night to night, it's all speaking about the glory of God. How many of you ever watched Bob Ross? Yeah, man, that guy is Amazing. He paints those pictures on PBS, and, and he starts off with just this white thing, and then he starts painting with happy accidents, and all of a sudden, these weird colors and shapes, and you're like, well, that's a mountain. There's trees. Oh, look, the cabin just showed up, and now there's, there's a path. 
And he just makes it happen. And you're almost dumbfounded at how he takes this happy little accident and turns it into a beautiful tree. Well, he's just mimicking what God did, except it wasn't a happy accident. He created all these things, and they speak to us. More than our words can ever say. As, as dumbfounded as we are, the boys and I used to watch um, Bob Ross, and we're like, how, how did he do that? Just look outside. Look at the sunset, the colors. Look at the grandeur of the mountains. Hear the roaring of the waves, the ocean. How did he do that? They all speak about the glory of God. Scripture further states that none of the speech of the heavens goes unheard, which means all of us hear what creation is trying to say. All of us have no excuse because it's all proclaiming it. What David is singing about here is the power of creation. It testifies about God. Inanimate objects are testifying about God. The heavens declare God's glory for far better than I can come up with. How many of you have seen a beautiful beach? Okay. How many of you have seen um, the Grand Canyon or a mighty beautiful river? Excellent. Okay. The ocean or the mighty mountains. There we go. You may have seen those sights, but how many of you saw those without the sky present? without one of the heavens. Even if you saw it at nighttime, you still saw one of the heavens, or two of them. You add the sky to those places, to that beach. Oh, the beach is beautiful, but then you put the sky above it. you got the mountain, and then you have that dark blue with the beautiful clouds going by. You have the Grand Canyon, which is just mirroring the colors that are up in the sunset. Add the skies, and you see how captivating God paints the sky with a lovely design that changes every few minutes. What we see here in Psalm 19:1, the sky gives testimony. Space gives testimony. Sky, space have all testified to the ancient Mayans. So much so that they knew there was something bigger and better out there. They testified, the skies testified to the Aborigines in Australia, the, the remote tribes in South Africa, the Eskimos. How many of you have seen the northern lights? Man, I want to see those. Who designed that but put these beautiful colors that don't make sense in the sky that are dancing? God shows this, and the heavens declare this to all the peoples of the earth, all the way to Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Pharaoh, King David. They all saw what we see in the heavens. The prophets gazed on the skies as beautiful of what we see. The Romans, the Pharisees, the apostles, the early Christians, we see what they see, and it all testifies to the glory of God. The glory of God is vaster than any earthly language is capable of describing. That's what this song is saying here. Can you try to describe the dazzling beauty of a sunset to a blind person? It's inescapable. You can't fully explain it. 
the fiery, beautiful golden aura that's around the sun as it cascades through the sky. And that doesn't even do it justice. So the heavens, creation, testifies to the glory of God. Let's go on verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. All this, we just heard about a song that was proclaiming that creation testifies. This is all talking about the Word of God. Scripture revives the soul. It is sure or trustworthy, making the simple into wise. That's my favorite part right now. It takes the simple and makes them wise. What David is singing about here is the power of God's Word that transforms the believer. God loves us as we are. There's no mistake about it. God loves you and loves me just as we are. We come to God as sinners, and God loves us. But, I think Max Lucado said it really well in the book, Just Like Jesus. God loves you just the way you are, but He refuses to leave you that way. He wants you to be just like Jesus. God will not leave you on a path of sin and death. He loves you. No mistake, He loves you. But he refuses to let his loved ones who accept him to stay on that path. He gives ways and opportunities to leave that so you can stand in truth. When we become Christians, when we are baptized and the Holy Spirit comes into us, that transformation process starts. I, I grew up in one of the greatest age of music and cartoons. Okay, Do you know what cartoon I'm going to say? Transformers. This robot that turns into a car or a truck or a bug. And it's this weird imagination, but you know really what that's saying? You can be changed into... The guys who created Transformers, all they did was look at a bug that God created and how it turned and transformed into something new. It wasn't original. They stole that idea from God. They stole it from Scripture, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Brand new. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You cannot become a new person um, outside of Christ. Without Jesus, you're going to be the same old person you've ever been. Once we are in Christ, we become a new person. But not just something new, 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled faces, because we come into relationship with God, looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. When we become a Christian, when the Holy Spirit comes in us, He transforms us so that we look and act more and more like Jesus. You can't do that on your own. I can't do that on my own. Creation testifies about the glory of God. The Word of God celebrates the transformation that the Word does for us. We change from sinners to saints. 
from wretched to righteous. That is what David is singing about, the transformation power of God's word in our lives. And yet there's a bit more to the song here. Go to verse 12. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here the song changed. A lot of times we can tell when a song changes because the key changes a little bit. The tempo will change a little bit. And so we know the song is transformed. It's, it's taking us to a new venue here. That, that's what this is doing. This song has just changed its tempo. First, it points outward, proclaiming that God's creation testifies. All of creation shouts about the glory and the majesty of God. Then the song shifted and pointed inward. How the power of God transforms in me, remaking us into the very image of Christ. But then it shifts from creation, creation of the heavens, creation of me. Now it goes right into the exact heart of God, to the throne room. Right here at the end, look what it says, Psalm 1914. May these words of my mouth, this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, in your presence. It is no longer the heavens are declaring. It's no longer I'm being transformed. It's may I in middle of your sight, may I in your presence be pleasing to you. In God's sight. When I read that part, I, I just stopped and it was like, how can I come before God? Man, it's one thing to stand and see the mountain and proclaim God. It's another to even talk about the redemption, the, the transformation in my life. These are all physical things we can see, we can proclaim, that we can experience here. But to come before God Himself in His holiness, His righteous perfection. How many of us would feel confident to go stand before God? That's where this last part of the song directs us. It sings about the power of God's redemption, of His redeeming us. David even said it in the last word of the song, The Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Redeemer means to gain or regain possession of in exchange for payments. Isaiah 44, verse 22 says, I blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. I have paid for you. I have paid the price, the penalty. What God says here is what David is singing about in Psalm 19. God removes our sins. Look what he did to the heavens. Look what he did in all of creation. Look what he did inside of me. And because of that, I can trust He redeemed me so that I can be in His presence. Because I have been redeemed, I cannot just go into the presence of God, but look how we can go to God. Hebrews 10, 18 and 19. 
And when my sins have forgot, uh, been forgiven, there is no need to offer any more sacrifices. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly, courageously enter heaven's most holy place. That means the throne room of heaven because of the blood of Jesus. We can boldly come before God. That, that's tremendous. I really think about that, that you could boldly, confidently go before God. Why would you be able to boldly go there? Why would you courageously be able to walk up to the throne room? How could you have the audacity to walk into the most holy place in all existence? To stand before the Creator, the just, the whole, the pure, the sovereign. How could you have the audacity to stand before Him boldly? Because He paid for it. He said, here, come in. There, there was a, a guy who was talking and... His dad's a huge CEO, multi-million dollar, probably billion dollars. And people were talking to him about it, and, and they said, ah, what's it like to go in before your dad? I mean, that's just amazing. He was, he's my dad. I don't ever think about it. I just go in. He doesn't knock on the door. He goes in to see his dad. Because redemption means relationship. I don't have to be scared that Father God is going to reject me. You know why? Because He redeemed me. I don't have to be scared that Father God is going to punish me. You know why? He's redeemed me. He's already taken that away. And because of that, I can stand there because He's already transformed me by the blood of Christ. And now, because I've been transformed into the likeness of Christ, I can stand there boldly because my God loves me. My God has saved me and I am at home. That's the difference. Creation testifies about God, but it's not at home. The Word of God talks about the transformation because it wants me to go home to God in the ultimate heaven. And we need to get out of our placated places here in church and get into home with God. And here's the greatest thing. The heavens are saying it. My life is saying it. All of us can take people with us. I can use every purpose, everything around to point people back to God. I got to see these really cool things in Wyoming called the Pumpkin Buttes. It's a mountain that's flat. And we got to find arrowheads. We saw the Oregon Trail there. And I got to hear about evolution in the millions and millions of years. And then when I told my uncle that when I came back from the field trip, he goes, no, God made them. Our church then went on a picnic up to Devil's Tower. What a great place for a, a church picnic, right? But it's this huge rock that just shoots straight up and has these claw marks looking things on it. And I remember my Uncle Jim talking about it. How God created that. The wonders of this mighty rock that just seemed to shoot up out of this, the ground. And yet that was nothing compared to the mighty power that God does in me. He used a rock. All of us, the Mayans, have no excuse. We have all heard the testimony of creation. So my question first is, have you heard it? Have you heard it? And then are you 
pointing other people to it. We can boldly go to this place and lovingly shouldn't we take as many with us as we can because Jesus took away our sins. He made us in the image of Christ. This is what David's song is about. And truthfully, shouldn't that be what our lives are about? Shouldn't we sing this song? Shouldn't each one of us be proclaiming this? Shouldn't we have the courage to be proclaiming and singing this out loud? The Mayans talked about their God. They talked about it. They made temples. They made carvings about it and whatever. But now the Mayans have been forgotten. We, we don't even see them. And, and this God that they did was kind of silly that he's upside down. But what are we doing? Are we proclaiming our God? What do we sing about? What does your life sing about? Does it sing about your accomplishments? Does it sing about your family? Does it sing about your comfortability? Does it sing about your wealth or power or prosperity? What does your life sing? That song we sang before I came up. How great is our God. In comparison to me, I can't proclaim how great my God is. In comparison to the sky, I cannot, con- cannot even come to terms to proclaim how great our God truly is. And so it needs to come out. What are you and I singing about? There's many times I just want to sing and, and play the songs of my, my youth, my, the fun songs of the 80s, not the weird ones of the 60s and 70s. And definitely not the ones of the 90s. But is that what my song, my life song's about? When people hear me speak, when people hear how I live, they see me, how I treat each other, what is my life singing? What is your life singing? We get a chance where we're going to come back up and actually use our voices again. The mountains, the sky, the planets, they all sing about the testimony of God. I don't want them singing louder than me. How about you? Do you need to make a decision about this? Do you want to say, I'm tired of singing my song my way, and I want to finally give my life and say, okay, it's all God or nothing? Make that decision today. If you want to be a part of this church family, this imperfect, broken family that comes together under the one true God, and serve with us as we go to reach more people, will you do that? You just need to change your tune of your song. Let's do that together. Let's stand and go to God. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have put a new song within us. We thank you that the music of your spirit fills our life and that we can truly proclaim with courage, with boldness about your redemption power. And God, I thank you that the heavens all declare your glory. I am so thankful that the word that you have given us, your word, transforms us. And Lord, let us not forget 
that even with that you weren't done, that you still stepped down and redeemed us. God, I thank you for that. And I truly believe that when we grab hold of that truth, God, that we will not be silent because we can't. Because of how excited we know that truth changes and impacts our lives. So fill us with that truth. Remind us once more, God. And as we go to sing again, may it not just be our voices, but our whole beings that proclaim how great you truly are. In Jesus we pray. Amen.